This morning, we're going to get into kind of an interesting uh, passage in the book of Isaiah. We're actually going to be in like 78 verses this morning. Um, And so we're going to just read for about two hours straight. (laughs) Um, But I'm actually going to tackle the passage a little bit differently this morning. So there's a, a large portion of it that I'm actually not going to read because there's a bunch of names in there that you don't want to hear me try to uh, <laughs> try to pronounce. Um, but we're going to be in Nehemiah at the end of chapter 6, verses 15 through the end of 6, and then we'll pick up in, verse, in chapter 7, and we'll go through the whole chapter in 7 this morning. Um, again, this morning is divided up kind of interestingly because of all the, this list of names that we get in chapter 7 in Nehemiah. And so uh, I, I just want to cut out a little bit of that this morning to, to save us some time. Uh, but I also want to give you guys kind of an idea of what you can expect this morning. There's going to be a couple things that I want to do this morning that will probably interrupt the sermon to focus on some other things. But I want to take a little bit deeper dive in this passage and then at first, and then I want to zoom out for a little bit with this text and try to understand the text in light of God's bigger picture with regards to scripture. How does this fit in to the grander story? Uh, And then I sort of want to like bring everything back around at the end and talk about how a couple ways this applies to us, Anthem Coeur d'Alene in 2023. Uh, For those of you that have been with us for a little while, we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah for the past couple months. And Nehemiah is a story about rebuilding these walls around Jerusalem Uh, after the Israelites have returned from being exiled. And Nehemiah is this man who's led by God to spearhead this project. And I want us to consider like the biblical significance of the people of God moving back into Jerusalem, the city of God. And I want us to think about uh, how that fits in with the purpose of God as a whole. So there's some bigger picture things that I want to tackle today on a day when we've got so much text with a bunch of names in it. I think it'll be a neat opportunity for us to understand the bigger picture that's at play here. I don't know about many of you guys, but you, you know, in this text, you have a, like thousands of people, 42,000 people moving uh, back into the city. And I don't know about you guys, anybody in this room moved very much in your life? Um, I've moved 14 times. I was counting them up so I could give you a number this morning. But um, one of the things you realize every single time you move is just how moving sucks, right? It's like every single time you move, like, this is horrible. Like, I hate it. And it's a ton of work, and it's complicated. So thinking about Israel and, and moving back into the city, the thousands moving back in, Nehemiah is going to talk about how the, the, the houses hadn't been rebuilt yet, even as they're moving back in. And you, you soon realize that this is a lot of work that they've signed up for. Some of them have been in Jerusalem before, prior to the exile, right? Like any, if there's any older folks, the exile, they've been exiles for 70 years. Some of them that are coming back potentially had been there before. Um, uh, and, and there's also kids and grandkids of those people that have never been to Jerusalem before, and they're coming back into the city. And in Ezra, the, the book that's sort of this partner book to Nehemiah, some would believe it's actually one book in and of itself, But we get this glimpse through his writing that when they finished rebuilding the temple with Zerubbabel, that some people actually wept. And they wept because 
It wasn't quite as amazing as the days of Solomon and the days of David, the, the temples that had existed prior when the temple was beautiful, but it had been rebuilt and was sort of missing something. There was something that was missing. And now Jerusalem was a town that was meant to house the people of God, and it was meant to house the Spirit of God. Like the Spirit of God was in the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark was in the holiest place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And the temple was surrounded by Jerusalem, by the city. And so the presence of God on earth was literally represented in this town and amongst these people. They represented the presence of God on this earth. It was a pretty significant place to be in the city of Jerusalem. And I'm guessing that not many of us in this room actually descended from Abraham. Um, we would have to be like Jewish Israelite people uh, to, to have that, uh, to be descendants. But there are certainly people out there that probably have. But probably the majority of us fit into this category that the Bible calls Gentiles. And when we talk about Gentiles, when they're referred to in Scripture, it's everybody who isn't Jew is considered this Gentile. That's you and I today. Everybody who didn't descend from Abraham. But in Romans chapter 11, it says that if we in Christ repent of our sins, we believe in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that we become grafted into the people of God. And so this is some of the bigger story that we'll get into in a little bit. And so we're now part of what is happening with the people of God. We're included in that. We're grafted in by way of Jesus. And this is really important as we think, of, think about Nehemiah and what's being said about who the people of God are and what their identity and what their purpose actually is. And so before we, we look at God's purpose, what God's purpose for us might be, as we read through Nehemiah, I want to start out by praying. And... Uh, I just want to ask the Lord to bathe this time this morning because there's a bunch of information that we'll get into this morning. I'm praying that it just lands on our hearts, that we understand the bigger picture. But I really think there's an amazing application in this for you and I today in Coeur d'Alene in 2023. And so would you bow your heads with me and let's just pray. Jesus, Father, we know that you're the creator. We know that you give life and you give breath, that you establish our coming and our going. And I ask this morning that you would give us just your insight today into your purpose for us. Give us insight into our purpose as your creation, Jesus. Our purpose as your church. Our purpose both corporately and individually, Jesus. Give us insight this morning and help us this morning. As we read from Nehemiah, Lord, and we try to make sense of and understand more about who you are and how you relate to us, I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to understand more about who we are how we should relate to the people around us, how it is that you relate to us. And we pray this in the mighty, 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 mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So again, we're going to cover 78 verses essentially this morning. So given that uh, you guys probably don't want to hang out long enough to cover a list of over 100 names this morning, unless you really want to listen to me try to pronounce them, I've trimmed it down a little bit to 26 verses that I want to go through. And we're going to start where we left off last week in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And it's sort of the, the culmination of the walls being finished and the celebration of the completion of the walls. And then there's this section in there about Tobiah. And Tobiah is basically Nehemiah's greatest opposition. Like Tobias, Tobiah is Nehemiah's thorn in his flesh, right? The, this whole book. And, and from here on out, he will continue to be that. 
But since the beginning of the story, Tobiah has been trying to thwart Nehemiah's work on the wall. He wanted to get him to stop. And again, we're going to see him referenced in this text, and we'll even see him referenced later in the book of Nehemiah, because he's sort of like this vagabond in the temple at the end of Nehemiah. But he's a real pain. And there were, then we're going to look at the, these first seven verses um, after we finish chapter six. We'll look at the first seven verses in chapter seven. And I think they'll tell us two things. One is that um, some rules and orders that Nehemiah had established, um, we're going to see him, like what are the things that he starts to put in place to begin to reestablish the city so it would function properly. Like these are some of the practical things. And then second, and then Nehemiah notes that the town itself at the end, he says uh, uh, or at the beginning of chapter 7, that the town is empty, that the town actually needs to be filled with the people of God. And then he begins to read this long list of people, over 100 different people that he mentioned that um, get called back to the city of God to begin to repopulate the city. And so that's how I sort of want to look at the passage this morning. So let's read chapter 6, verse 15 uh, through 19. To start, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by, the oath, by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in, this, in, his, in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I, found it, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his, own, to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem and Banah. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon are now cut down to verse 60. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. There's this massive list of over 100 that he invites back. Uh, verse 61 The following were those who came up from Telmalah, Telharsha, Sherub, Adon, and Amer, but they could not prove their fathers' houses nor their nor to their descent, whether they belong to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642, also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakos, the sons of uh, Barzillai, who had, been, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai and the Giladite, 
and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Verse 30, uh, 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720, whole lot of donkeys. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. I'm going to stop here for a second. Uh, quick, quick sidetrack. I'm going to do this a couple times. Last month, I had come to you guys and I had mentioned the fact that, you know, our church, like, just budget-wise for 2022 was, like, for the first time in over a decade, we were, like, in the hole. And, um, and it wasn't looking pretty. And just to give you kind of a general... Um, idea, you know, our budget for the year was like 920,000. At the end of November, we had about 700,000 come in, so we're $220,000 short, and we're hoping to have like 100,000 come in in December, and so that would have still put us at a significant um, uh, deficit for the year. And I'd come to you guys, and I said, I hate talking about money, um, and just mentioned like the, the fact that, you know, we look, it looked like we were gonna be in the hole for the year. And honestly, you guys, like the way this church pulled through last month was um, miraculous. We brought in like $200,000 in the month of December. And I say that because um, as we read through this text, I can't help but stop in this portion and see how all of the people come back to the town and they all start giving what they have to contribute to the work that has to be done. The reality is, is you show up here on a Sunday morning not knowing we rent this facility, we have um, another facility that we own, that we have a mortgage on, um, that there are just hard costs to do what we do, whether we like it or not. And to see the church of God come together and actually begin to contribute, not to be people that are just recipients of what God is doing, but people that take ownership in it and begin to be givers, people that want to step in and take responsibility for what God is doing. It is not lost on me that the last 12 years of my life, my sole income for my family has come from you. Like, what a privilege and a blessing it is for us to know that people give sacrificially in their lives so that we can be free to do this full time. And I thank you for that. Like, that is not lost on me. Um, but as I look at the way the church pulled through last month, the way the giving came in, I was just floored. Because little do you know, and maybe some of you do, that you know, 10% of our budget every year goes outside of these walls. It goes to local nonprofits, and it goes to our missionaries that are positioned all over the world 
doing like kingdom work in different countries, like amazing work. Um, little do you guys know, like some of the, the, the things that happened with the Christmas store in December and the amount of families that were blessed as a result of your generosity, like it continues to be paid forward. Like it is not lost on us that you guys sacrificed to be a part of this. But what I wanna challenge us with this morning is the fact that this is how it's been from the beginning is the people of God looked at the work of God and they saw an opportunity for them to be not just people that take from it, but people that give to it. And so you see this section, people start anteing up and giving to the work that's happening. They're actually overjoyed to be able to do so, that they're gonna go back and reestablish their city, the, the city of God. And so one of the things that I, I, that I, that I wanted to do just in stopping here for a second is just say thank you. Like, thank you. I, I appreciate all that you guys have done, even in a season when there's so much uncertainty in our economy, and I just wanna say thank you on behalf of our elders and our staff. We, we really appreciate the way you guys pulled through in December very much. Back to the text. So what do we see in this passage? Well, right away in chapter six, verse 615, we learn that the wall's done. The passage tells us that it's finished in the 25th month of Elul. Um, so Elul in the Hebrew calendar is the, or the 25th day of the month of Elul. Uh, Elul in the Hebrew calendar is the sixth month of the year. This wall that they've built is two, two and a half miles around according uh, and according to this passage, they did this in 52 days. Like, what an impressive feat. I don't know if you've ever tried to build anything recently. Anybody? I mean, it's hard to build a house in under four to six months. Uh, a two and a half mile long wall, eight feet thick, 40 feet tall, done in 52 days. Fairly understaffed as well. But this is a lot bigger than that, right? 52 days is truly a miracle. Now, don't forget that we had read earlier in Nehemiah that there was a famine in the land while they're working on this, that there were people that were trying to stop the building of the wall and stir up trouble. There's opposition that they're facing both on the outside and on the inside while they're trying to get this work done. And so this is the story about God miraculously enabling his people for this work. This is exactly what verse 16 tells us. It says that the people who were the enemies and were trying to cause trouble for Israel, they were looking at what was taking place and the feat that they had accomplished. Their enemies were, were trying to cause trouble. They're seeing what happened. They're observing this for 52 days. They've been watching and they see that this wall is done and they say, God must have helped them. There's no way that this could have been done outside of God himself. His hand must have been upon this. So those people are, are, are working not just naturally, putting their hands to the plow and doing the work, but there's a supernatural assistance that they have. Something's happening here that they could not do in and of themselves on their own. And I love the phrase at the end of verse 16, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's their enemies saying that about them, the bystanders. Could you imagine for one minute, go with me here, if that's what was happening at Anthem in Coeur d'Alene. Could you imagine if God's hand was so evidently upon a people 
that the city started commenting about what it is that's taking place. It seems like it's the hand of God. It seems miraculous. There's no way they could do that in and of themselves. They seem to be operating in a power that nobody else really understands. And if the sentiment of the city was that it couldn't be explained outside of God being present among them, could you imagine that? I mean, I long for those days when the world would look around at the church and be like, there's no way they could do that stuff. That has to be the hand of God. Like a movement where people would, would be seeing how, how, how the church, which is not a building, but it's a people, it's all of you guys, how it was loving other people with a love that did not look natural. Whoa, do you see that? There's something that doesn't make sense about how those people love others. Or that there's a supernatural power that comes from those people that does not make sense. They see things, know things, pray for things. They have abilities that nobody else has. It has to be the hand of God. Could you imagine if people were receiving freedom from addiction amongst this people? And others were looking in going, people are being set free from drugs and alcohol and sexual addiction. All the things that the world has bondage over others it with, they're seeing the church being set free from where people hear testimonies of people who were trapped but found freedom amongst a community of people that desperately love Jesus, a place where the city heard about Christ and how he transforms lives, and then people start flocking to come experience Jesus among you, not in a building. Please hear me out. It's not about getting him here, because the temple's with each one of you as you leave these walls. It scatters throughout the city. But think about a community of people that don't bicker and backbite in the midst of a culture that that's pretty much all they do is talk trash about one another. Those people don't do that. I know they could, I know they have reason to and excuses to, but they just don't do it. But they, they, they exist together in this sort of like cohesion that, that the world looks at and goes, how are they so kind and genuine to one another? People are so irritating. How, how do they love others? Would that not be amazing? And as I read through the story and I see that others are commenting on the work that they've just done and the fact that they couldn't do it on their own, that it was the hand of God that must have been upon them to accomplish the work that they did, I think that should be us today. We should be those people. About six months ago, as we were studying through um, the, the Holy Spirit, and we, we got into some moments where we were talking about prayer and wanting to be more intentional about this. You know, it's been really neat. Like, we slowly started more opportunities for prayer, whether that be after service. Like, there's a prayer team that is here to pray for people. And that's just not just something so that you can just, like, get a real quick prayer on your way out. It's like people who want to petition the Lord on your behalf and see healing. See Jesus actually work and mend situations in your life. And we started this Wednesday morning prayer thing at 6 a.m. where, you know, on, on a weekly basis, there's been between anywhere from like eight to 20 people that have been gathering it's from six to seven on Wednesday mornings just to pray. And you're invited to that. But as I got into this passage this week and I was thinking through like 
my heart for our church to be marked in a way that the city would see the hand of God upon you. One of the things that becomes really apparent when you start thinking like that is how does that start? What is the soil that a movement like that is actually birthed in and it's done on our knees, on our faces, seeking Jesus? Asking for his kingdom come and his will to be done, to align our hearts with his. And so I'm gonna do something really weird here for a second. Some of you do not like it when I ask you to pray amongst one with one another, but I, I wanna spend two minutes and I want you to grab a few people around you and for two minutes, all I, all I want us to pray for is, um, Jesus, how, how can this happen for us? Mark us. Like literally ask for the hand of God to be upon this church and these people that are in this room. Like pray that, that, that Jesus would be at work transforming and changing lives at such a rapid, deep rate that it would be noticed by the people around us, not because of anything we did, but because they see that what's going on is not possible through man, but it was possible because the hand of God must have been upon them to accomplish those things. And so take two minutes, grab three or four people around you, and we're just gonna pray. And then I'll close us in prayer and we'll get back into the text.
Jesus, we thank you for the work that you are doing in our midst. God, both individually and corporately, we thank you for your heart for the city that you've placed us in. And we pray, Jesus, that you would continue to line our heart with yours, that we could see people as you see them, that we would be uh, a people that would always take massive steps of faith, be the most generous of the generous, the most loving and kind and compassionate. Um, we would be the people that would step into the hard situations because we believe that you're with us in the midst of them. And we wouldn't be a people that would veer from hard combos and reconciliation and doing the hard gospel work that you've called us to. Jesus, I pray that your hand would be evidently upon these people, that the city would comment not how cool is that church or what cool stuff do they do, but they would say there's something about those people. It's as if your hand is upon them and you're with them and you're moving amongst them. And I pray that that would be evident in our lives, Jesus, and that we would be a people that would surrender all, give up everything to chase you down, Jesus, to go after you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. So in, uh, if we look at Nehemiah chapter 7 in the first three verses, we see that Nehemiah establishes some basic structure for the city. And I want you to bear with me for a second because there's some logistical pieces to this, but I'm legitimately super stoked on kind of where this lands. Um, but Nehemiah highlights some of these basic roles that were already existing. So they had the temple, and some of these, things, these roles existed in the temple already. They had uh, these singers, gatekeepers, they had the Levites, and he's establishing these official roles of what it actually meant to be Jerusalem, right? He's putting things back in order as they used to be prior to the exile. And so in verse 2, he sets up these two leaders, Hanani and uh, Hananiah. And Hanani was the brother of Nehemiah. If you remember, he's the one that goes and visits Nehemiah when Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. And uh, Nehemiah says, so how the heck is home? You know, like, how's Jerusalem? And then Hanani is the one that gives him just the downer info. Like, it's pretty rough. Things are real bad down there, man. Like, the city's a mess. The reputation is totally shot. Things are really messed up. It does not look good. The walls are crumbled down. And then he also brings in this other dude named Hananiah. And this guy had this reputation for being a man of God, this God-fearing man. And Nehemiah was looking for some God-fearing people to help provide leadership to the city that he's reestablishing. But I want to point out something that sticks out to me in this passage when it comes to how he describes Hananiah. It's sort of this anticlimactic description of this guy. Did you catch it when we were reading through it? He says, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. He's pretty good. He's like a C. He's not like A-level, but he's pretty good. Like, I read this and I think about Job, right? Where, where God's talking to Satan and he says, like, have you considered Job? Job is faithful. Or David, who's known as being what? The man after God's own heart. And then you've got Hananiah, which he's better than most. <laughs> like you could hope for something a little bit better, but biblically, you need to understand that there are some threads running through scripture. Threads that, that are important for us to understand. One of them is that we see in the Old Testament is this theme of like insufficiency, really. 
where insufficiency is this theme that runs like from Genesis all the way until Jesus comes onto the scene because we're meant to see that no matter what man does, no matter what man tries to produce, that he's actually insufficient, that he just can't do it. Like he's just better than most. And so you've got Solomon, and Solomon builds this temple, and it was beautiful, and built with gold, and it's lavish, and he was wise, and he's sort of this pinnacle guy, and yet even Solomon was insufficient. It carries on throughout the Old Testament. You go along, Adam and Eve, insufficient, right? The prophets, insufficient. The kings, insufficient. They weren't able to do it all. And this insufficiency in the story of restoration and the health of our relationship with God, like this is the thread throughout the Old Testament because the reality is that we don't need another Hananiah or Job or David, do we? We don't need a godly guy who's gonna come in and just make everything right and change it all for us. Who do we actually need? We need Jesus. Like, he's actually the answer, and that's where the scripture sort of takes us. So there's this thread in the Bible, like, why I'm reading all of these names, and and it seems sort of weird, this long list. The reason is because you're moving through this thread where, where it's showing, like, there's this insufficiency after insufficiency after insufficiency through the whole Old Testament, which leads you to a place of realizing If nobody could do it, then who can? And then we realize when Jesus comes onto the scene, he lives his life, he dies a brutal death, he resurrects from the dead, we realize Jesus is the answer to the whole thing. He's the one that can break the curse and break the cycle. He's the only one that can solve our problem. So I don't know if that's why Hananiah is sort of described this way, but it reminds me as I read through that, of the same thing that we see throughout the Bible, that we are just insufficient on our own apart from the saving grace and work of Jesus Christ. We're desperately in need of Jesus. It's also kind of worth noting as we move through this that Nehemiah's critics said that he was gonna do what when he finished the wall? What were they saying about him? That he's gonna rule, that he's gonna take authority, that that was his whole plan, that he's gonna be in charge, that he's gonna rebel against the king. They say all of these lies to try to trip him up and get him off the work. And what is Nehemiah doing here in the verses that we're reading? Is he taking charge? No, he's actually delegating authority. He's putting other people in place. Like, he's like, I'm going back to being a cupbearer. You know, like... I'm gonna get back to my day job at some point. But Nehemiah faithfully follows the Lord. In verse three, Nehemiah establishes some of these protocols regarding the gates. If you remember, there there were attacks, and so they were on the defense, and they're building this wall, and Nehemiah says, keep up the defense. Like, the walls are great, but they're not foolproof. Like, you've gotta be wise. So he says, don't open the gates up until sun's up. Um, so that you can see the people, like it's a lot less easy to attack us. And then as soon as the sun goes down, like you stay out there, you stay in front of the gates until those gates are closed. Nehemiah wants to make sure that the city is protected, that all that God has done for his people, as we've read in this story, that it's protected, that the people remain blessed, that they're blessed by this wall that not only provides security for them, but they're also blessed by their leadership, that they're blessed by God and how God is working amongst his people. Like Nehemiah wants to protect that blessing. And then in verse four, Nehemiah points out 
the emptiness of the city. He says, I looked around and it's vacant. The houses hadn't been rebuilt. The people weren't there. They hadn't moved in yet. And so when I look at the, the, the 78 verses of this passage that we're going through in Nehemiah today, the point being made is that Jerusalem actually needed to be occupied. You can't have a city without people occupying it, right? It was empty in verse 4. And then in beginning in verse five, God moves in the heart of Nehemiah to begin to go research who belonged in the city. And so he shares that list with us, this long list of people who were descendants of Abraham, who were the people of God, who were the returned exiles, who belonged in the city. And now a little clue here to the future. Part of the reason that they were going off these genealogies, as he's saying, like we're gonna get to in some later chapters in Nehemiah where they'd been marrying into other nations which they were instructed not to do, and it was like quite problematic, right? And Nehemiah may be shining a little bit of light on that, like revealing some of that here as he's reading through, as he's naming these lists. But Nehemiah says that God led him to take this census, right? So he's following the Lord to take the census of the people, which is important. If you think back, David himself took a census, right? And I think it was in 2 Samuel, like chapter 24, David takes a census and God gets mad at him, but David took a census for what reason? For a totally different reason than Nehemiah's taken. And not because he was led by God to call the people of Israel into where they belong, but because he's counting numbers to make sure that he could actually win battles, that he anticipated fighting, to make sure he could do the work, not necessarily needing God's help. Like he didn't have the faith. And in this case, Nehemiah says that he's following the Lord, the Lord's lead to bring the people of God back to where they belong in the place of God, in the city of Jerusalem. So in verse 73, we see that that's exactly what happens, right? The people settled into their towns where they belonged. And I pointed out that they had finished in the month of Elul or in the sixth month uh, in the Hebrew calendar. And it says that it was like the 25th day. And so now he says that it's the beginning of the seventh month. There's 29 days in the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. And that means in the span of five days, like no more than five days, these people, 42,000 people, shift in. That's quite the move. It's miraculous. I mean, given they probably have a lot less crap than you and I do, right? They don't have U-Hauls helping get their stuff back into town. But it's still a massive move. So if we're trying to zoom out a little bit um, from Nehemiah and see the bigger picture that we've kind of talked about a little bit, I want to end sort of helping you understand some of this puzzle and then trying to figure out how it applies to you and I. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, he says. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the family that you, church, have been grafted into. According to Romans 11 into Abraham's family. Now, God said, I'm gonna establish something between you and me, Abraham. 
Like, I, I'm going to bless you, and, the, and Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to others. Like, you are blessed to be a blessing. And as a matter of fact, all the nations of the world and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. I mean, that's quite the charge that the Lord is giving to Abraham. That's quite the blessing. Now, to us, you and I, we read this thing, and we go, oh, that's cool. Seems rad. Seems obvious. Blessing was passed down through Abraham. But you have to understand that there was Israel, the, the, the people of God, the offspring of Abraham. And then there was the rest of the world, the Gentiles who had no place in that family. And so this idea that Abraham and his people were going to be a blessing to every family on the earth, every nation, every continent, every country, every person, it was a big deal, like infathomable for them to actually grasp and understand. And so God gave Abraham material possessions, right? He gave him sheep and prosperity in his life. And in that way, Abraham, even with what he had materialistically, was able to be a blessing to people. But that wasn't exactly the heart of the text, because from Abraham's seed came who? Eventually, Jesus. And it's Jesus that we are waiting for. As I talked about this insufficiency deal, that Jesus is the one who accomplishes that. that. That's the blessing by which Abraham and his family will be a blessing to all the nations, that it would happen through Jesus. And so you too have been grafted in to this family. Like every blessing you have materially or otherwise in your life is meant to be a blessing to others it was something that God gave you that you did not deserve so that you can use to be a blessing to others. But the most significant of that, by a long shot, you guys, is the fact that if you know Jesus and you know what it means to follow him and you know what he taught and you know what it means to believe in Jesus and to be saved by him, that that is the most significant blessing that you have in your life. That's it. Bar none, that is it. And the most significant difference that you can make in other people's lives, it's helping people understand their purpose in God as a result of the gift that you've been given in Jesus. That's actually the purpose of God's people. And this is all part of what's happening to Nehemiah and to the people of God in this story, right? They were given Jerusalem. To, to sort of like re-own their purpose as a people um, who were blessed by God in order to be a blessing and to testify to God. And, and we see that happening in verse 16, right? They're all, the wall's built. They all start coming back. I mean, in their eyes, it's like this thing is being rebuilt. Like it's finally coming back to what it was. But consider the, the, the historical biblical reputation of Jerusalem. So the Israelites are in Egypt, right? Let's go back to the beginning. And they're slaves, and they go through this ocean that, divide, that divides, right? And they walk through it. And then there's this guy, Moses, and Moses goes and he's given these 10 commandments on the top of Mount Sinai, right? And he gets the commandments, and he comes down, he actually breaks them, he goes and gets them again. He comes down, he takes all of these things, all these elements that represented God's hand upon them, that he was with them through all these things, and they compile them all and they put them in this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is this chest that encompassed the presence of the living God. And where did this Ark sit? Well, while they're in the desert, this Ark sits within a tabernacle that's mobile. And everywhere this tabernacle goes, 
there's this holy of holies inside that tabernacle where this ark sits. And it's like the most cherished place in the whole tabernacle. It's the presence of the living God. And then you fast forward a little bit and then Solomon goes and he builds this temple. And the temple becomes the stationary tabernacle still has the Holy of Holies and it houses this Ark of the Covenant, which was God's presence among his people. And so here we've got Jerusalem and Jerusalem's significance was actually the presence of God amongst its people. I mean, you've got the Holy of Holies with the presence of God in it, surrounded by this temple, surrounded by the city, surrounded by the walls that they've created. So these walls were not just about housing or protecting a group of people from warfare from the outside. It was actually about protecting the presence of God because they were the ones that contained it. It was in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so here are the people of God back in the city of God showing the world again the presence of God among them. And so generations later, generations after the exile, these people begin moving back because God begins to move in their hearts and, and their reputation again, begins to grow. And Nehemiah looks around in verse four and he says, this town's kind of empty. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And he invites these people back. He creates this list. And then in verse 73, they're there. They're back in the town. And so what does this have to do with you and I? And I would point out two potential applications for our life from what we're reading in Nehemiah in this chapter and how you see it fitting into the larger story of God and how he works among us through his people who have been grafted into the story. And the first is about strengthening our faith. So there's two things I wanna leave you with. One is this, is that you can have faith. You can. When God promised that he would exile them if they were disobedient and that he would bring him back, what actually happened? That. God actually did that. That happened for them. He's going to do it. When God says, if you return to me, I'll be faithful to bring you back, what did we learn in Nehemiah? Is that God is actually going to be faithful and he's actually going to do it. When we learn that God's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham, what did we learn when we read the New Testament? That he's going to do that, that he's going to follow through. When God says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age, what can we believe about that statement that Jesus makes? What can we believe about what he's going to do? That. That is actually going to happen when he tells his disciples that he has to leave them, but in leaving them, he's going to send them a helper. And it's gonna be the Holy Spirit who would empower them and would enable them to do more than he ever even was able to do himself. What can we believe that God is gonna do when he makes a statement like that? He's gonna follow through with it. And we talked about the significance of Jerusalem, that it's God's dwelling place with his people, right? So when he says in Revelation that we grieve like those who who have hope, right? We, we have a kind of hope as believers that other people do not have. And he says, a new Jerusalem is actually gonna come down from heaven and join earth, and he will be there with his people. That there is no temple anymore, just the presence of God. What can you and I believe about that statement? That he's gonna do that. That it's actually gonna happen. 
And that Nehemiah isn't just a story about building walls in 52 days. I mean, like, we could easily just say that's the end of the message. Miraculously, they built this wall in 52 days that they could, have not, could not have done on their own. But it's actually a story about God that you can actually believe. That he's actually working today just as he did then. And that there's a testimony that comes uh, like through of people who are part of his work. Like if you are merged into this, you're grafted into this, you are part of the presence of God. He is amongst us. We can trust that he will continue to do this work. And my last thing is this. It's about you walking in your God-given purpose. And the world wants to give you all these purposes in your life. How many classes can you find online about like discovering your purpose? Anybody like sick of like the test you took that told you what your purpose in life is? And I'm gonna simplify this down to your purpose. The Israelites, their, their God-given purpose was to live in Jerusalem and to testify to the goodness of God as he manifested his presence among them. That was their purpose. And I can't help but read this story and think, what makes a city? I mean, I mean is, it, is it the resort? Does that make our city? Does the lake make our city? Do all the businesses in our city make our, what makes our city? The people, you make this city. And in Christ, what is it that you, as the people of God, bring to a city that nobody else can? Not rhetorical. <laughs> the presence of God. The spirit of the living God that people had to go into the tabernacle into the temple to find in the holy of holies placed within this chest actually resides in each one of you and it is no longer contained in a building but it's in his people and when i think about our city and the fact that you are the ones who make this city up but the presence of god will be felt sensed seen in our city because of why because of your presence in the city to bring the presence of God to other people. And I can't think of a better call for a church to represent the presence of God in a city that doesn't know him. That as you move, work, play, drink coffee, eat food, live in your homes, reside in your neighborhoods, whatever it is in this city, that the thing that sets you apart from everybody else is that the presence of God resides in you. And actually what the world should see in you and I is the fact that there's something different about the way they move and they talk and the things they do and the decisions they make because the hand of God is actually not just upon them, but God is in them. And that's a really significant thing for you and I. You house the presence of the living God. And so I'm going to close with that. And my, my encouragement to you is as we read through this, it sounds like this massive list of names. And it, it sounds like all these logistics being put in place. But the reason Nehemiah was doing this was to reestablish the place that the presence of God could not just be experienced, 
but, but a place that it could be sought, a, a place where the people could be housed and they could come together as it once was. And for you and I, we have this amazing privilege to house the presence of the living God. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we take that for granted. It's sort of like money in a bank account, like that's there, or go down the list of the things in your life that you may take for granted, your house, your vehicles. Sometimes with God, I feel like he gets put up on a shelf and we sort of take for granted the fact that he's more than the dude that you pull off the shelf when you need him. He's more than the guy that you show up on a Sunday morning to lift your hands and sing a song to. He's more than the guy that you even open up your Bible to read from. He's actually somebody who is with you, in you, moving through you in all days, at all times, in all facets of your life. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I wanna pray for us this morning as I realize there's some of you in this room, maybe you've never even like put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And maybe this whole idea of like the presence of God being in us is something that you're like, I want that. And maybe for some of you, you have just taken this for granted. And my prayer for you this morning is that maybe there'd be just kind of like a shaking up of sorts to realize what does it mean to be Chris in Coeur d'Alene in 2023? It's more than going through my daily responsibilities and doing my jobs and my duties. It's actually how am I housing the presence of God and displaying the presence of God for the world around me that does not know him. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I just thank you for your church and I thank you for this story. I thank you, God, that as we read this, it's just easy sometimes that we, we look at the Old Testament and we just think, oh, that was for then and, and, and we sort of like file it away and then we try to find, figure out like, what that means for us today, but the reality is, Jesus, is that that wasn't just for then, it's actually for now. And we have a lot to learn from even Nehemiah's story about how God led them to do something that they couldn't do on their own. And that thing that they accomplished actually was something that set the stage for the rest of the world, for the glory of God to be on display for all. And so I pray for us as a church that there be a reinvigoration and sort of reformation of our hearts and our lives. Jesus, the, as we look at to prioritize our life and put the right things in the right seat on the bus, I pray that you come first and foremost. And I pray, Jesus, for just a sensitivity to your spirit by your people to know that when they go to breakfast after church this morning, there's literally opportunities for the presence of God to manifest itself in a restaurant. At a, around a table with their family in a conversation with a friend. And I pray, Jesus, we just let you have your way and do your thing. And that day by day, we just are continually grateful for the gift that you've given us, Jesus. I pray your hand be upon your people, that you bless them and keep them, that your face would shine upon them, that you'd give them peace. And as we leave this place this morning, God, that our hearts would leap with joy at the opportunity to serve the God that we are, that we get to, to be invited into the story that we are invited into. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close in a song of worship, um, these rugs are open, they're prayer rugs. Feel free to come forward and pray.
feel free to grab one of the prayer team and pray with them. Feel free to just sing your heart out to the Lord. I mean, what a privilege it is that we get to meet in this building, sing the songs we do to glorify the name of Jesus. Amen.